Welcome to Makers and Movers, where we unveil the extraordinary journeys of manufacturing leaders. I'm Andrea Hoffer, your host for this podcast. And today I'd like to welcome Scott Brown onto the podcast. Scott, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And and Scott has held various leadership positions in lots of large manufacturing brands as well as his own throughout his career. So I'm excited to hear about his journey and what words of wisdom he has for us us today. So Scott, can just, you, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> Could you just start out by telling us a little bit about how you got into manufacturing? I know that's an, an interesting story. Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, as you said, a journey, I thought, my God, I'm a Sherpa here because I'm going to take you to Mount Everest. I have such a career. <laughs> that, uh, anyway, I have a bachelor and a master's degree in education, and I actually started teaching when I uh, finally got my bachelor's and working on my first master's, which is, was education. Uh, but my wife and I wanted to start a family, and it was too difficult on two teacher salary. She was a teacher as well, really to start a family. So I started a second master's in business and I was extraordinarily lucky, extraordinarily. Um, a person whom I had met at a party had invited, who I didn't know what he did, uh, <laughs> but he and I had talked one evening uh, at the party and he called me and said, I know you're looking to get into business. You're working in an MBA. Would you consider working for me? And his name was Alan Merrill. And I said, well, uh, Alan, I'm flattered what do you do? <laughs> and he said, I'm vice president of uh, sales and marketing uh, for what was then Frigidaire and later became Electrolux. And um, I was floored and flattered. Uh, I called two professors I had at Miami University and asked, you know, should I do this? And they said, well, you know, really finish your MBA. That would be a better choice. But I know you don't get asked things like this that often, especially from someone at that level if you're coming into business for the first time. And all this eventually will lead to several of my stories, not just because I went to work there. I, I think it's an advantage. I had not been in business before, and I mean that. Uh, so I called my father-in-law, who owned a major corporation um, called Kim and Ear, which made giant fluid agitation equipment for like Eli Lilly and Stroh's and uh, Procter and Gamble. Everything that got mixed was one of his huge vats and machines and all that. And he drove a Rolls Royce and all that. Uh, so I called my father-in-law. Of course, he was worried about his daughter at that point. And I said, should I take this job? And he said, I'll never forget what he said. It smacks of naivete that you would be at a party and meet someone and they would call and ask you to go to a new profession. Didn't you just get tenure as a teacher? Yeah. Yes, I did. He said, and you would consider doing that. I thanked him and hung up. My wife said, what did daddy say? I said, never mind what your daddy said. I'm taking the job. So <laughs> I actually left teaching. Uh, I asked the board if I could have a leave of absence, not knowing if it would work or not. They said, you're welcome back anytime you want to come. And uh, I had one class left to finish my uh, MBA. And I started at uh, a Frigidaire. And it, it was wonderful. My first job was manufacturing. Um, I really did all the forecasting. I, I mean, here, <laughs> I wasn't a kid exactly. I was in my later 20s, but I was essentially a kid to that business. And they were trusting me, which I felt the weight of, to really 
forecast every skew that they had. And there were thousands of skews. I mean, you multiply colors and refrigerators and freezers and washers and dryers and dishwashers and laundry centers and you know, on and on and on. And all the accessories do. And uh, it was wonderful because I felt every day I was sinking. And that, that makes you very sharp. It makes you very tuned in. It makes you uh, very, uh, it hypers, hyper, uh, you're hyper analytical over what you're doing and why you're doing it and trying to understand it. And so anyway, make uh, try and condense the story. I started out doing that. Then they gave me pricing because pricing was a mess and they had just been purchased from um, General Motors, Frigidaire had. So they had brought very few people along. So I had a guy stop me in the hallway one day and he said, do you know, you do pricing, right? I said, yeah. And he said, just you. I said, yeah. He said, you know, eight people used to do what you're doing alone now. And, but all that was great. I never felt oppressed. I never felt angry. I never felt resentful, nothing. I felt blessed. It was wonderful. Um, and so they kept giving me things. And finally, I was offered to be the head of marketing for refrigeration, the, you know, the, the marquee product line. And Hal Schaefer was the president. So Scott's a bright guy, but I won't let anyone be marketing unless they've been a salesman. So I went and was a salesman. And then later I did parts and service. Later I had builder. Later I had everything. And at one point, because we were not making the profit in the US that the CEO wanted, uh, he put me in charge of a project to bring um, Six Sigma lean, um, continuous quality improvement to the factories. And I put together uh, a plan to do that. I led the plan while also being the head of parts and service and while also being the head of international sales for Lawn and Garden. Um, but I did that and that was wonderful. And they liked what we did, being they being in Sweden, and they asked me to replicate it in Britain and then plants in other places. And then uh, my parents uh, both deceased. Uh, and I had to go back and take care of family holdings. We have a family farm. We have some other things. So um, I left business for two and a half years just to get all that straightened out. My The death of my parents was totally unexpected, and I'm an only child. Uh, so um, I went and did that, and then I was approached by Bosch Siemens, uh, who at that time only had Bosch dishwashers in the U.S. They had nothing else. And they were wanting to go complete. They were wanting to do refrigeration. They were wanting to do cooking. They were wanting to do dishwashers, all the things that I had done and been associated with at Electrolux. And I went and interviewed and uh, Franz Bosshart took me to lunch and he came back and we sat and talked, I don't know, hours. And he finally said, how much would it take to get you here? And I always have the same answer for that. I think you'll be fair. And when anyone has ever said to me, like, we're going to ask you to do this now, we're going to ask you to do that, what kind of money do you want? I, I, I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be a kiss ass, sorry for the language. I, it's just how I feel. I, I feel that I work with these people and I know these people and I know the industry. And I, I know that generally you're talking to very fair minded people. And so uh, he, he gave an acceptable uh, amount to me. And so I started working there. And it was another whirlwind, but a wonderful one, because they at first asked me to structure refrigeration, having come from a company like Frigidaire. They asked me to do it. So we did we did it the correct way. We went out and did all sorts of analytics. By the way, the refrigeration was going to be 
uh, built in. So uh, initially, so we principally looked at Sub-Zero, who was the market. We principally looked at KitchenAid, who was the market. We principally looked at anyone else who had a strong uh, market share within building refrigeration at the time. Not to copy them, just to understand what, you know, what the market was. And then we went around and simply took pictures of people using their Sub-Zeros and KitchenAids to see if you know the way that was physically being used by a consumer seemed conducive to what they needed. I, I remember, this is the way I think. I remember saying you know, to myself, I said, you know, well, who we need is a meeting with Kroger. We need a meeting with Kroger because we need to know where they think foods are going to go. Will there be more packaged foods? Will there be more frozen? And so we set up a meeting. Kroger was delightful. Kroger and the executives met us. We had a wonderful meeting with Kroger. They showed us what their forecasts were in various categories of foods. That helped us shape our storage story. And um, I'll, I'll digress only for a second. And then I, I want to kind of dissect some of what, what you've shared right. here. Well, <laughs> okay. Then anyway, then I did that. And um, uh, I finally was asked to be a member of the board of directors. And I, I would say to my three sons, I don't know if obituaries will be popular when I die, but if there's anything like it, please make sure that it says, you know, Scott Brown was on the board of directors of Bosch Siemens, because I'm very proud of that. And my CEO retired, and then I left and uh, had an opportunity uh, to buy my own company uh, here in Houston, along with a private equity partner, totally manufacturing, and it needed a turnaround. And then I went and I turned it around. I will say that the initial time when I when I purchased 20% and they owned 80, um, Lehman Brothers had just gone under. Uh, the Great Recession had just started. And my wife looked at me like, I know you do really well, but is this a good time? <laughs> but I was off. And by the way, we did a great job. So it's interesting. You seem to have this theme of the turnaround person for different yes. departments, for things that you don't, at the time, you didn't really have any experience with. What what drives you? What drives you to take on these these challenges? Well, uh, I, I can give you a personal reaction, and then I can give you a more pragmatic reaction that I think other people could apply to their lives, uh, or at least in this sense, but life in general, perhaps. Uh, my One of my sons had a close friend uh, in high school who was starting to skip school. His parents had gotten divorced, and he wasn't going to graduate. And I learned this, and I said, what are you talking about? His name was Phil. I said, Phil's one of the brightest people in your class. I said, my God, you know, and I called his parents that night. One of them was a judge and the other was a local attorney. And I said, you may, and by the way, back then you did, you did, you couldn't do joint calls. We had to get AT&T to set up this uh, conference call. So it, I, I called him and I said, you may tell us to go to hell. This is my wife and I on the phone, but could Phil come and live with us for the next seven months? Because we'll get him to school every day. We have three sons. They go to that school every morning. They get in the van. You know, we don't take any stories, but we're nice people. But, you know, they brought him that evening and uh, Phil graduated around five years later. Phil called me one evening and he said, uh, Mr. Brown, he said, hey, Phil, call me Scott. And he said, uh, I'm in an ethics class uh, in my law program. He had gone to college, become an attorney. And he said, um, I had to write about someone I admire and I'm going to write about you. He said, what drives you? I said, oh, Phil. I can tell you what it is, but I can no way endorse it. I'm never satisfied. I said, it's awful. Uh, I said, it's, it's won a lot of victories for me, but it is not always a very pleasant 
way to be. But, uh, and that's actually the single note I had made to talk about. I had seen this online the other day, and it just simply, I can't even attribute it, that starting from scratch can offer numerous benefits. And they list them from the perspective of what the outcomes would be for someone who entrusts a duty to someone who's never really much done it before. Uh, you get a fresh perspective. Uh, you get adaptability, that's your own, plus maybe you, the way you used to do it, and you're trying to refine it, isn't even the right route. Uh, and maybe that person can point that out. It's the freedom to innovate. Uh, anyway, I'll go one more spot with that. That's what every business consultancy I've ever worked with, and I have worked with almost all of them, McKinsey, uh, A.T. Kearney, uh, Booz Allen, and in Europe, McCurry Irvall, uh, Boston Consulting, they all come in and do a situation analysis because they don't exactly know about your business. They don't know. Uh, they're just observing. And usually it's newly minted MBA students who really have no depth of experience. I don't mean that negatively. They come in like I did, tabla rosa, blank. You know, they're trying to figure it out too. And 99% of the time, maybe that's a joke, 98%, 98% of the time, you'll have the best outcomes. You'll have outcomes you never, ever dreamed about from having that. It's, it's wonderful. I, I get so upset, so upset by if you're interviewed during your life and they think, well, you don't, you've never really done this. You've never, you've never worked with blue widgets before. And, you know, we really are a blue widget company. Uh, and since you haven't worked with blue widgets, I mean, I, I know green widgets are close, you know, and, you know, I mean, on the color wheel, you know, they're, they're close, but they're not the same and we can't use you. I mean, you know, that's really interesting, the point that you bring up, because, you know, I'm constantly talking with very good talent in lots of different industries. And we do a lot of focus actually in sales and marketing. But our clients are often saying if they haven't sold what the industry we're in, if they don't exactly. have that, then then we don't we don't want to speak with them. And yet there are some amazing people who have been very successful and they had to learn the industries they've sold in in the past. But they it, it, we're in such a fast paced world now, probably a lot faster than when you started. Do you think it's still true? Yes, you can bring somebody and it's in. unfortunate. Uh, it's uh, really what it shows. And this sounds like me taking a swipe at it. And it isn't. I think it shows quite clearly that the hiring manager has not had a wide experience base. And therefore, they are suckered into this viewpoint that unless you've done this, there's no way you can really help me. And I like the way you started what you said. You said you've met a lot of talented people. Go with that. Really, go with that. I, I remember just, uh, very briefly, I, 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 I applied for a job once. This is after, uh, even when I owned my own company because we were moving toward a sale, and, which was uh, you know good. That's what we had intended to do. Well, uh, the private equity owners and myself was turn it around and sell it. But anyway, uh, it actually was for a title company. And in the course of all these careers I've had with Bosch Siemens and AB Electrolux, uh, I moved 17 times. So, I mean, I bought and sold a lot of houses. So the, it was to be president of the title company. And so I interviewed with the consultancy that the title company had hired. They liked me. They had another consultant call me because I wasn't from the industry and they liked me or the answers I gave in my approach. And uh, the CEO then called me 
and said, you know, you're a final candidate. Uh, I'm meeting today. We're having our large meeting. I won't mention the company and uh, annual meeting. And I'm going to talk to the sales force and I'm going to talk to some marketing people, but I'll be getting back to you. Well, he got back later that day and said, they just don't believe you can do the job. They just say, unless you've been in this business, you really could not lead this business. And the default is that most people accept that. And that's really pitiful. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. However, the only thing I will clarify is you have to go with what you initially said. You have to feel that you're dealing with an intelligent, capable person. You have to do that. And if that's an intelligent, capable person, having that precise amount of, pardon me, precise variety of experience is not necessary. But unfortunately, that's the way the world flows. Yeah, I, I hear that very often. And what's interesting, one time about six months ago, I was working with a, a client who, you know, had a job. They they were looking for a salesperson in a specific industry, and they wanted to grow that that area, that segment. So they wanted somebody who who understood right. it, and they just couldn't find someone. And I brought them a candidate without telling them his name and said, here's what he's accomplished in his other roles. He hasn't worked specifically in the industry you're looking for. Yes. And they started to drool. They said, we, we want to meet him. We want to meet him. And, and when, I spoke, when I spoke with the candidate, he said, I already applied and they already rejected me because uh -huh. their first look at the resume was he doesn't yes. have the industry. No, I, no, I get it. Yes. And, and unfortunately, there's too many computer programs that do that today. Mm -hmm. So you don't even get to the chance of someone thinking you might be good at that. You, you don't even get that kind of advocacy. Right. Yeah. Tell me, I don't know if you know, but what do you think made that person long ago from Frigere come up to you? You, you had an education background. Yes. What, what made them think you could or even want to come into business and start yeah. and start doing what you're doing? Well, uh, it isn't going to be a great, it's not a bad answer, but it, it maybe won't give you the insight perhaps you thought it might, uh, but maybe it will. Um, as I implied by my father-in-law point, my wife came from a wealthy family and she was a member of the Junior League, which was a very high class uh, women's club at the time. And, and sorry, I, I'm not being sexist. That's the way it was. It was an all ladies thing. And um, his wife was in it as well. And uh, my wife and his wife had talked about husbands and things you know, in various discussions and families. And she had mentioned I was working on my MBA and yet I'd been a teacher. And I think he became intrigued by it. Uh, the reason he and I talked at that party that night is I had three sons. They all played sports. I went to every game they were. I every game they did football. Uh, my one son excelled at ice hockey, baseball, oh, the whole thing. But as far as professional sports, I don't watch them. I, I nothing against them. They just don't interest me. Uh, they didn't interest Alan Merrill either. And so Alan Merrill and I are sitting there as Joe Namath is playing football, and neither one of us have any interest, and we just start talking. And uh, my wife had made a favorite dessert of mine, chocolate pie. I said, you got to try this. And we sat and had the chocolate pie. We ate the whole chocolate pie, by the way. Uh, and um, we just talked uh, in a normal way. And the only thing he knew about me was I was in an MBA program and, and 
from that, that subsequent discussion where he called me and said, you know, uh, I think you're very intelligent and I, I'd like you to consider this job. He took a chance. He really took a chance. Uh, there's a great movie I would recommend it. it has nothing to do with this, but it has everything. Uh, it's called Happy New Year. And um, I can't think of the actor who played Columbo, uh, Peter Falk. Peter Falk is the star of it. And in it, he there's a very dignified woman who actually uh, curated a museum or like that. And she and he is a rough tumble guy and she invites him to dinner. Her friends are just stupefied. Like, where did you get this guy? <laughs> and um, she asked him, what, you know, what do you look for in a lady? He said, if someone is beautiful and charming, um, I ask him out and take a chance. And she dismisses everyone else at the table and they spend the night. Uh, but that's, uh, it <laughs> wasn't sexual in our case, but he just wanted to take a chance, I think. And the other thing is he had learned the lesson that I'm, I think I'm now espousing. I don't think I found it on my own, uh, which is that he didn't necessarily believe that someone who had come from the industry was necessarily going to be his savior. And in fact, you've triggered a thought in my mind. He actually said to me, uh, I don't want anyone who's done this before because it the business has changed, the market has changed, uh, the attitudes of customers have changed both in a, a wholesale level and at retail. And he said, I need someone who is not held back by preconceptions. And I was lucky enough to meet that all along when Bob Cook asked me to take parts and service. I had never done parts and service. And, you know, it sounds like a little thing. This was a it, number may be larger now. I don't want to offend Electrolux. It was a $400 million division at the time. And he just gave it to me and said, you know, it's losing some money in these areas. And he said, would you please fix it? And then, and this, I give so much credit to the bosses I've had. No one ever came up to me a week later, a month later, two months later and said, how's it going? You know, you need help. Like we should meet so I, so I know what the hell, what the hell you're doing. <laughs> they never did that. Uh, they just trusted me. And through it all, I would sort of, me, me trying to understand it, my mind would race ahead and and then I'd learn they didn't do it that way. And I'd go, well, well, why not? I mean, that seems to make sense and be more expeditious than the way you're doing it now. And I mean, that's that's what happened. But I give Alan Merrill so much credit. And I've done that. I have, you know, from one story where we had a slight preliminary conversation. You have to trust people, intelligent people. You need to trust and bring them in and just and just lay the problem out and let's see what happens. Yeah, I'd, I would love for you to just briefly tell that story that you told me the other day. Uh, yeah, yes, the company that I purchased along with the private equity company made window coverings uh, like shutters and shades and grass cloth shades. And um, we didn't make fabric things, but the only fabric was the woven uh, grasses, but everything else was a hard material. But we fabricated it. We, you know, we stamped the pieces, we trimmed the wood, we did the home, we, we did the, everything was done there. And a group of people hand sewed the, because uh, it was a very intense, um, hand process for the woven wood shades because they're very delicate materials but the other stuff is you know more stamped out but still requires a lot of work and uh they take if you order them they take I don't know, a week 
week and a half generally to work their way through the factory and to get finally shipped to you. They're all custom, by the way, because everyone's windows are going to be shorter or taller. And, and this person wants blue and that person wants white and this person wants a tight weave and that person wants all, you know, on all the permutations are there. And uh, so I bought the company and it was losing money because it was losing it, its uh, customer base, which had been brick and mortar. And designers who had local businesses and either drove in their car to meet people at their homes and have them select things. We had no brand. It was all OEM. It was all original equipment manufacturing. It was, you know, Mr. Designer A and Miss Designer B's product. Or if it was online, it was whoever the banner for the online e-commerce site was. Um, so um, I, I needed business and um, e-commerce seemed the, the highest growth. I mean, it not just seemed, it was. I mean, I didn't have, you know, if you if I looked up the customers who were brick and mortar, you know, their, <laughs> their, their, their curve was a straight slant. Um, so anyway, uh, I went around to two or three e-commerce and I said, what can I do to get more business from you? I said, I'm being sincere. I said, you know, uh, I'm the, I'm the president of the company. I have money in it myself. I don't want to, I don't want to go broke. And I don't want to, I don't want a hundred people back in Houston, Texas to lose their jobs. And I'm very sincere about that. If I'd see someone get a new car in the parking lot, or if someone told me they're going to have a child and I'm not a terribly religious person, I would say a prayer every morning as I came in that building. Please let me make the right decisions so these people continue to have a job. I, I mean, I was so sincere about that. Uh, but anyway, um, so I, this guy is an offhand remark. I've actually gotten out to my car and it's snowing. I remember it was in uh, a suburb of Detroit because right across the street was the GM Tech Center. And I'm a big car buff. And I kept thinking, I'm standing where Harley Earl used to drive in in his car. And where the first Corvette was, I mean, my God, I, this is the GM Tech Center. And he ran out and he said, hey, Scott, Scott, Scott. And I put the window down. It's snowing. I said, hey, go in. You're going to freeze. He said, no, I thought of something. He said, you ask how to do more. He said, occasionally the manufacturer will do like a one day turnaround. And he said, we get a lot of customers to that. He said, but the problem is, you know, usually you have to like make it only one color because you don't have enough material or you're trying to pre-do steps and, you know, you can't anticipate what it's all going to be. And, and so he said, but anyway, that's a thought. So I, I drive to the airport slowly because the snow gets worse and the plane's delayed. So I'm making notes and having thoughts and I get back and I invite in my head of marketing and my head of purchasing and, uh, and my CFO, because if you're going to start something big, you got to have your CFO there. It's like, do we have the cash flow to try something really new? And, uh, and it sounds like a joke, but anyone who owns a business knows what I'm saying. Um, uh, but, uh, they looked at me like, because I said, let you know, let's, what if we could actually build everything in one day? And they didn't laugh, but there was no reaction whatsoever. I mean, I mean, in their minds, I could tell they were thinking, this idiot, this is who we work for now. Uh, this guy's going to look for a uh, look, you know, uh, out for us and drive the company, but to profitability. Oh my God. Yeah, I could see it. So I had brought in Javier Trevino, I shouldn't say a name. I brought in a young man who ran our plant and he he was two to three decades younger than any of us. And um, in his very early twenties. And uh, I said, 
you run the plan, Javier. I said, what would it take? Well, these others are being so negative. I finally dismissed the meeting. But I said, Javier, we stay. And I closed the door and we had a whiteboard. And for three hours, we sat in there. And truthfully, I came up with the concept. Javier came up with the how-to. He came up with, okay, the people who take the orders off the system in the mornings come in at eight, uh, seven rather, uh, for our eight o'clock open. Uh, If we brought them in at four, they could download and have the cut sheets ready. That's the instructions for each uh, station to build the things. And uh, we could have the cloth and or the wood and or whatever, by color, by fabric, all laid out, ready for the first, you know. And I said, I'm not looking to do everything. I said, you know, I don't want to overwhelm you. And I don't want you to go home and contemplate suicide. I said, this is just, you know, let's try it. And I said, I only want to try it with our largest customer. I don't want to mention their name, but it was that customer. That I, uh, by the way, not the guy who gave me the idea. Oh, there's the dirty part of business. Uh, <laughs> he wasn't. I didn't have enough momentum with him to give him the uh, the chance. But anyway, uh, later on, he did get it. To be honest, but I gave it to another customer for one year exclusively. And uh, so anyway, for uh, two weeks, every order that came in from that customer, we built in one day, literally. And no, no other business sacrificed. It wasn't like, oh my God, we've got these orders we haven't touched in you know two weeks now, and they were so far behind. It ran beautifully. Now everything won't happen like that, but in this case, it it happens like that. And so I asked for a meeting with our largest customer. I went. Uh, I had met him once before, but he hadn't suggested an idea. I went and had lunch with him. I took him to lunch and he said, why did you come back so quickly? I said, I have an offer for you. And if you opened up his site, there were nine tiles, nine choice boxes for materials. Let's just say it's uh, woven wood shades. So they're like the top three are the best, uh, the second or the middle and the low, you know, the third or the lowest price and different color selections, different weaves, all that kind of stuff. So. Um, I said, we have built every order that you have placed with us for the last two weeks overnight. We have, and we've received the order in the morning and shipped that evening. And the customer will have gotten it the next day or the day after that. But you could claim it was built and shipped in one day. And I said, I will do that for all your products if you will give me six tiles on each page. What are you talking about? I can't do that. Uh, I said, well, if you were able to do it, you could actually relabel your site as one day production on all custom orders. He did it. And we got the six tiles on each page of each product category we were in. And we became his vendor of the year the next three or four years in a row. Um, and then I offered it because I, I was very I'm always very truthful. I said, I'll give it to you one year exclusively. But then after that, I'm going to open more widely. But I give Javier the credit. And, and the others didn't even want him in the meeting. They said, he's a factory guy. You're, he'll see financials. Uh, and Bob Cook, who was the CEO of Electrolux right at the end, uh, people were getting shredders. Shredders had become very popular. And uh, he said, do not buy anyone else a shredder. He said, if anyone can get a hold of our paperwork and figure out what the hell we're doing wrong, I'll give them a bonus check. He <laughs> said, I don't care. I'll take help from anyone. And uh, anyway, um, that's well, the story of how we did one day. Well, I, I love that story. And, and thank you for sharing it. We are 
kind of out of time here, but I, I'm glad we're, we're ending on, on this story. One, there was so many lessons in there. And one of my favorites is you ask the customer, you know, what is yeah. it that you want? Just yes. give me, tell me the ideal situation. And then you went back and you figured it out how, how to get it to him. Yeah, the customer, the market, but the customer will always tell you what you need, always mm -hmm. tell you what you need to do in order to get more business. Now, they may not be able to directly tell you. In other words, his was kind of direct, but sometimes they just, uh, one other quick thing, I know we're out of time. Wait, we I actually, yeah, we do need to wrap yeah. up. I'm sorry about right. that. But maybe we can have you back another time. That would be, that if would be like. great. Um, but thank you so much, Scott, for, oh. for the, your stories are just great. They're entertaining, but they're also um, very educational. I think there's some really good business lessons in there that challenge people and to, to think a different way than, than they normally life. do. Yes. Real life. Yeah. Thank you. And oh, thank you thank to you. All, all our listeners. I appreciate you tuning in. If you like this episode, please hit subscribe. We'd love to have some reviews as well. Uh, the, the more subscribers we get, the more stories we can keep bringing you. So thank you again. This is Makers and Movers, and I'm Andrea Hoffer. Oh.